Welcome to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas, and I'm here with my co-host, Luann Thomas-Ewald, the Chief Operating Officer of C.S. Mott Children's Hospital and the Von Voigtlander Women's Hospital. On this edition of Women Who Lead, you'll meet three women doing amazing work in our community. An interesting and informative show coming up next. Welcome to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas. I'm here with my co-host, Luann Thomas-Ewald. And our first guest on today's show is Amy Romer. Amy is the clinic director at the Salvation Army William Booth Legal Aid Clinic. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. And you know, Amy, a good friend, Judge Fred Mester, has been talking about you and recommending to me for years now that I interview you. So I'm glad we've been able to connect. I'd like you to tell our listeners, you know, just a little bit about the clinic and what you do. Sure, thank you. Um, so the William Booth Legal Aid Clinic is part of the Salvation Army, and we are the only legal aid clinic that the Salvation Army has worldwide, and we provide free legal, legal services to anyone who lives in the community at or below poverty guidelines. And what kind of um, clientele are you serving at this clinic? Like, could anybody come into the clinic? How does this work? So as long as they financially qualify, we really try to not turn anyone away. So they have to live at or below poverty guidelines. Um, And then obviously we can't have a conflict. Um, Most of the cases that do come through our door are family law related, um, cases involving landlord-tenant issues, um, people who are um, having credit, creditor disputes, that is the typical kind of case, but we try not to turn anything away. So we'll get calls for um, for employment and uh, Social Security, um, guardianship, probate matters, um, all, all sorts of things. We're, we are a full-service legal aid clinic. And the William Booth Legal Aid Clinic has been around for a long time. Tell us how it got started, Amy Romer. Sure. The clinic started in 1994 by um, an attorney, Robert Dickman, and his wife, Ellen Dickman. And Robert wanted to to do something more than what he was doing in his practice of law, and he wanted to be able to give back to the community somehow. Um, And he had met someone that was on the Salvation Army board and said, you know, because um, Robert's initial thinking was like, maybe I should start a, a homeless shelter or something like that. And they said, don't reinvent the wheel. The Salvation Army has programs. What they don't have is a legal aid clinic. And so in 1994, Robert and Ellen founded the William Booth Legal Aid Clinic. It was its own 501c3 at that time. And they uh, started helping men and women who were going through the Salvation Army Harbor Light Center, which is the Salvation Army's drug and alcohol treatment center. And Robert's goal was so um, to help those in treatment with any legal issues so that when they were out in the real world in their recovery, they wouldn't have uh, legal stumbling blocks and um, that might send them back to their addiction. How did you get involved in the clinic? I, well, actually, I got involved through Judge Fred Mester, who was mm-hmm. on the board of the clinic, and I knew Judge Mester. Um, Judge had always 
he loves this clinic, and he'd always talked about the the good work that the clinic does. And um, on his own, he sent my resume to <laughs> to the Dickmans, mm-hmm. and um, I got a call one day, and I thought I had started my own law practice, and I thought, well, you know, they're asking me to come in to meet them. I I didn't really apply for this job. Uh, so I I gave a call and I came in and I I loved Alan and Robert and I started here as a staff attorney in 2008 became assistant director from there and then in 2013 I became the director of the legal aid clinic. And do you have a lot of attorneys on staff or how does this work? So I like to say that we are small but mighty. Um, it's myself and then two full-time attorneys that work here. So we are helping just shy of 2,000 clients a year um, with their legal issues, and it's just the three attorneys. We, uh, we are a teaching clinic, so we bring on interns in the summer, and um, in the last few years we have started actually teaching a family law clinic at um, – University of Detroit Mercy Law School, and so um, we bring students into our into our office from there and teach them um, about family law, and then um, it's a win-win because they are getting real-world experience, which you don't get in law school, and we are getting uh, all hands-on to help our clients. And can other lawyers uh, that are in other practices in the community also get involved and help you out too? Yeah, so we do accept um, uh, pro bono assistance from other lawyers. And what we love the most is when a lawyer would be willing to take a case for us. So, because there's, you know, with only three attorneys here, and we try to be full service, there is some areas that come up that we just can't handle. And so, it's great when attorneys are willing to help us out and and take on a pro bono case um, for a client that would qualify for our services. And you know, the nice part about this is, it is true that when somebody is struggling and they're, you know, they're really having a tough time in their life and they need legal help, the fact that you're there and you can help them get through it and kind of lift them up, then when they do get back out into the community, they don't have a giant legal bill that they have to deal with. That's true, yes. And and the court system is so overwhelming. And Mm -hmm. if you don't have the education and the knowledge and certainly the funds to um, get assistance, it it can really um, just be another... Uh, you know, addition to like a mountain of problems, sure. and it and and it causes people to not take care of of their business right away, which you as you know can um, can cause just a spiral effect of more and more problems. And so, we really our goal is to be a beacon of hope, to be a place where where clients can come, they can get get the help that they need, and have a positive experience with the judicial um, system, because I I actually think that can be really life-changing for people, Um, you know, to provide them hope hope when they feel that they're in a hopeless situation. And it's all kinds of stuff that we've helped. We've had interstate um, parental kidnapping, Mm -hmm. international custody disputes, um, you know, just so many... So many people dealing with domestic violence, um, homelessness, transitional poverty, all sorts of really um, hard issues that play play a role not just 
um, for our client, but really for the community because you the the this reach of the work that we do we can't even know because you know you're you're helping a parent and then that sh- uh, helps the child who then can you know grow up and do more and the out the outreach that it has you know is 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 really great. Do you have an example of someone whose life was really changed after using the clinic, Amy Romer? Sure. Um, just recently, I had a client um, come to me. She was uh, having a cancer battle and um, was in an abusive marriage. And while she was going through treatment, her husband at the time took her kids and left the state of Michigan. Um, and this was during the pandemic, so the court system was very hard to access in the in the very beginning of COVID, and um, she didn't know where to go and what to do. She tried. She located them in Florida. She tried to go down to Florida to get her children, and um, he beat her, and she fled. And um, so somehow she found our number. She actually got in touch with me. I looked over her information and said, like, I've got an idea. I don't know if this will work because by this time the kids had been in Florida for a little, for for quite a bit of time. Um, But we filed something. The court accepted our argument. The state of Michigan took jurisdiction. We were able to get an order for her to have the. immediate um, return of the children to her. But of course, dad was not complying. Um, So she had to register her action in the state of Florida. Florida police got involved, found him, the children were missing. He had sent, when he got wind that she was filing all this stuff, because we have to serve him, um, he sent the kids to another state. They were in Kentucky, and the Kentucky police, um, state police, stormed a house, removed the kids, and they are now safe, um, safe with their mom. Wow. So you made a huge difference in her life. Huge. Yes. And you also have a great fundraiser called the Walk for Justice. Can you tell us just a little bit about that, Amy? Sure. Um, When I took over in 2013, it was really important to me that the clinic became, um, had an awareness in the community and So uh, we started the Walk for Justice, which is an annual event at the Detroit Zoo. Our 2023 date will be May 13th. And it started the first year as as an actual walk where we had a start and finish line. And um, but it is no longer a walk. It is a party at the zoo. So we have um, a silent, a massive silent auction. We've got music and food and face painting and and entertainment. And um, it's it's our big fundraiser, and it helps to uh, allow us to provide the services that we do. And how can people get involved with that? Um, We've got a website. It's walkforjustice.org. And um, there are are links uh, to to register, to donate, or just to email the clinic if, if you're looking to volunteer or to assist. Well, we salute you for the wonderful work that you're doing, Amy Romer. It's it's really amazing. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you to Amy Romer, the clinic director at the Salvation Army William Booth Legal Aid Clinic. We'll be back on Women Who Lead right after these messages.
As we continue now on Women Who Lead, we say hello and congratulate Dawn Eisen, the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. She is one of our 2022 Women Who Lead honorees. Dawn, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for this honor. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, it's very well deserved. I'd like you to start out and just talk a little bit about yourself, about your career, Dawn. Yes, of course. I've been a public servant my entire career. I was a criminal defense attorney for about 12 years, but during that time, I represented a number of indigent clients, and I've been with the U.S. Attorney's Office. It will be 20 years in September, so I've committed my career to being a public servant, and I couldn't be more proud to serve in this capacity so to make have this significant impact on the community I love. And you know, Don, this is just a coincidence, but I just finished interviewing Amy Romer, the clinic director at the Salvation Army William Booth Legal Aid Clinic, and I'm sure you really respect the work that they're doing in our community. I did. I I do. I very much um, respect that work. In fact, we toured um, the Salvation Army and just saw all of the services and that they provide for people in need. And so we, I really, really do respect the work being done at the Salvation Army. They have a long history of helping um, people in the community, and I couldn't be more um, appreciative of the effort that they um, the effort they make to help and heal others. So talk a little bit about how you became interested in the field of law. Have you always said to yourself, you know what, when I grow up, I'm going to be a lawyer? You know, I did develop that interest at a very young age. Um, as you might have heard, I've met several challenges in my life. My father was murdered when I was nine years old. My mother struggled to care for me and my brothers. And I um, just did not want to be defined by my circumstance. And I wanted to be a voice for people like my mother and like myself. And so I developed that interest in, at a very young age, just wanted to help others. And um, I've committed my entire career to doing just that and I couldn't be more honored and humbled to serve in this way. And you grew up in the Detroit area, Dawn? I did. I'm a daughter of Detroit, a product of Detroit Public Schools. I graduated from Cass Tech. I went to a college, however, in Atlanta, Georgia, at Stallman College, and I came back home and pursued my law degree at Wayne State University um, Law School, one of the best law schools, in my opinion, because they teach you how to practice law. And so I'm very grateful for having that great education and all that practical experience during my um, law school training. And I've been in the, the area this entire time, um, since 1989, serving this community. And I'm very happy about that. Um, so yes, I'm a daughter of Detroit, but I, um, I just am so grateful to serve this entire district. Um, I've been serving this district for a long time, and I'm really proud to be in this position to serve in this significant way. Well, let's talk about what you're currently doing. What are some of the challenges that you're seeing here in Detroit in your new job, relatively new job? Yeah, um, you know, violent crime, you know, my obligation is and my responsibility is to protect and serve. And I take that very seriously as well as does my office. And we've been really um, focused on violent crime reduction. We um, institute a strategy that's both focused, balanced, and fair, targeting the most violent offenders in the most violent places and the most violent groups. And we have been successful in trying to do that. Uh, we just 
We are in the middle of our summer enforcement strategy where we targeted two of the most violent areas in the city of Detroit in two precincts. And we um, we have focused on those and uh, we were taking the cases that we developed in those precincts, the violent cases, directly to federal court. And we are doing that in collaboration with our state and federal local partners, Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, ATF, FBI, and the Detroit Police Department. But we also paired that strategy, and this is a foundation that we're laying in um, our um, throughout the district. We paired that strategy with also trying to remove blight and um, address other um community issues in those precincts as well as throughout the district to improve the quality of life for people. So we had um, we have that. We have a point of contact with the city of the mayor and um, with the mayor's office. And we also, we have not only enforcement prosecutor in prosecutors in five Detroit police department precincts, we also have community prosecutors who work directly with the community relations council there to address some of the blight and other concerns. And so we have advanced, in addition to the enforcement, we've advanced some of those concerns to the mayor's office and the mayor has committed to addressing those concerns because in our efforts to create peace by removing these most violent offenders, we also believe as an office that the place should look peaceful and to the extent that we can advocate for that, then we will because we should be a place, a resource for people as well. And we also had what we refer to as peace picnics with a C, where we came together and had over 30 vendors uh, providing all kinds of services, expungement services, um, Secretary of State was there, various uh, federal and local agencies were hiring. We had um, we had a literacy, we had literacy programs represented. We had after school programs and then we had bounce houses and food and fun. And it was really a collective non-enforcement community engage, engagement event. Two of them, we did one in the eighth precinct, which was one of our targeted areas and one in the ninth precinct. And it was really an opportunity for law enforcement and the community to come together and fund fellowship and resources in the name of peace. And we're very happy with the turnout. We're very happy with the response. We went to the community relations councils in those two precincts, and they supported it wholeheartedly. And um, we're very appreciative of, of the additional work that we're doing to be focused, balanced, and fair, and to also serve as a resource for the community. You know, Don, this is such an interesting thing that you are doing this summer, because it sounds to me like you believe and the police department, Chief White, and the mayor's office, everyone believes that by getting the community more engaged within, with, with the police department, with your office, with each other, that you will cut down on violent crime. I, we, I, I personally believe it, and, and, and the folks in my office, we believe that. We believe, and the, the Chief White and, and the mayor, we all collectively believe. And I think studies have shown when you have both punishment and prevention and you have the um, community involved in um, the effort with you, because before we rolled out the strategy, we went to the Community Relations Council and told them what we were going to do. And so they were just so grateful to have someone come and talk to them about the enforcement what data we used to target the areas, what strategies we had. And so they just felt um, really grateful to have someone come and inform them about it before rolling it out. And so we do believe that the police cannot do it alone. We need the community trust. We need them to help us to solve these crimes. We need them to help us take back their communities. And quite frankly, and throughout my um, service thus far, the communities are ready to do just that. 
They are ready to do that, and they are actively engaged in this effort to take back their communities and improve the quality of life for those in their um, communities. And we're ready to join them and help them in that effort. You know, the other part of this that I think is interesting, too, is the blight cleanup. Because if the community is cleaner and people have a nicer place to live, work, and play, that's going to help with this crime issue, too. Yes, because just like in a learning environment, it has to be conducive to learning. And so it has to look fresh and new. And I I believe that you feel better if you're in a nicer looking place and you're more inclined to keep it that way. And so we do find that to be very critical as well. It should look like a peaceful place if we're trying to engender peace in people. And so once we remove these violent um, offenders and, 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 and target these violent, most violent locations, and we have the community working with us to do that, then they should also feel good about where they live and how it looks. And so we are helping them in those efforts. And so we, as I said, we have pushed forward several um, blight concerns through this enforcement strategy. And this is a foundation that we're trying to lay throughout the district. We're going to Pontiac, Flint, Saginaw, and everywhere else to build this foundation of building and building upon, rebuilding and building upon community trust, as well as pairing our enforcement efforts with providing people options and resources for a better life. And, you know, here in Detroit, we're lucky because we have many, many businesses that have literally adopted neighborhoods, and they're in these neighborhoods working to make them better and cleaner and safer. And we're, we want to join in that effort. Um, we, um, as I said, um, I think the community is ready to take back their neighborhood and that with the help of those business persons as well as you know like i said our state and federal and local partners and our commitment we can do it i am so optimistic and hopeful that we really can do it what kind of advice do you have for young women that might want to follow in your footsteps well, I would say, first of all, no matter the challenge, no matter the obstacle, you, do, you are not defined by your circumstance. Just be prepared. Be ready to seize the opportunity. Um, seize upon mentorships. Be very proactive about mentorships. I did not get here by myself. I had a number of people to help me along the way. And so be proactive about developing mentorships and people you would like to be like or, or emulate. So be very proactive about that. But then just work hard. And when the time comes and the opportunity arises, be ready. Be ready to seize it. And, um, and you'll be fine. You will work. And, you know, it is interesting. It is interesting because we are starting to see more uh, judges that are females and more attorneys that are females. And it's, it's great to see that in your profession. Yes, thank you. Um, I always say that I'm humbled by this opportunity because there were so many women, qualified women, who could have been, would have been, just and, and who could have been, would have been in this position if given the opportunity. So to have the doors open for women in all capacities in this way, especially in the legal community, because it's still a very male-dominated uh, profession, then um, we are very grateful. Uh, but I stand on the shoulders of all the those who came before me, who were qualified to be in this position as well. And so I hope that I will leave a good legacy for those who will follow me as well. Dawn Eisen, United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. It was great to talk to you and to get to know you a little bit.
Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the honor, and I am here to serve, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to do it. You are listening to Women Who Lead. We'll be back right after these messages. Continues. We check in now with Dr. Donna Rockwell. She's a clinical psychologist practicing in Michigan and New York. She's also an adjunct faculty member at Saybrook University College of Integrative Medicine and Health Sciences. And she's also one of our 2022 Women Who Lead honorees. And when you hear what she is working on, you will know why. She is the founder of a new organization called Already Famous with Dr. Donna. Donna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Anne. It's such a pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about this incredible project that you are working on. Well, Anne, I'm a mother of boys, so I don't have daughters per se. But I would like to think that all the young women and girls out there are daughters to me because I care about their future. I started Already Famous with Dr. Donna as a result of my research on the psychology of fame and celebrity, which is actually, interestingly, the only published research on the psychology of fame and what celebrity does to us psychically. Hmm. And in conjunction with that doctoral work, I'm working on a book on fame and celebrity, a book talking about an updated look at how our desire and lusting for fame, lusting for this kind of recognition can be our undoing. And so I started Already Famous with women, for Women and Girls because I wanted to help them understand who they actually are. What we're doing is we're giving our generation of young girls, adolescents coming up, a really hard thing to handle, which is to feel a sense of self, to be embodied, as they say, in our core being, because young women and girls have given over their agency, their sense of personal control to social media, to an algorithm that the Wall Street Journal reported Facebook knew about, that Facebook owns Instagram, the data being that adolescent girls had a high increase in depression, anxiety, poor body image, and even suicidal attempts because of Instagram, because of social media, where they are forced to compare themselves to others rather than know who they innately are, to harness their innate brilliance and to be able to offer that to this world. So Already Famous with Dr. Donna is a wellness community focused on self-confidence, inner worth, and establishing meaning in our lives because that's the only place that true happiness actually comes from. And I'm hoping really that this is a movement for women and girls to reclaim themselves and our innate power Because as I end all the videos that I'm doing for this cause, I say, you are enough and you're already famous in all the ways that really matter. 
we need to be the celebrities in our own lives and see ourselves in that light. Donna, you know, um, I, you know, I work at CS Mott Children's Hospital, and we see we've seen the increase in anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts and suicidal tendencies. And, you know, we, we could put on a chart, you know, the introduction of social media and the use of social media and how all of those things have increased, the depression. You know, we're seeing over 100% increase um, in, in teens throughout, especially girls uh, throughout the United States. So how, you know, when our kids are bombarded with these ads and images and celebrity, that there's that they think is what's reality when it actually isn't. How how do we combat that? How do how do we address that with our kids? Yeah. I think what's so important is to understand it's a weighty thing to accept, but our children get their value system mostly from their parents and from their their community, like you know aunts and uncles and grandparents. That's what we most integrate into our neurology. As you're pointing out, the problem today is everyone has these devices in their hands. So we are actually sitting ducks to toxic material. What needs to happen is just the way we floss our teeth for dental hygiene, we are going to have to teach the upcoming generations about social media hygiene. And parents need to be a little more stiff and strong in having time that's for social media and time to put the phone away. You know, many families have this like bowl and at dinner time, everybody puts their phone in the bowl. They do that at parties as well. We need to do that at home. We need to get our children back because I studied communication in college and I read a book that I'll never forget. It was called Subliminal Seduction. And that book talked about how advertising stole our brains and we were buying things we didn't even know we wanted. <laughs> we are really neurological sitting ducks to all incoming stimuli. So as parents, we need to be incredibly discerning and step between the algorithm that is stealing our children from us and us. We need to step in and make rules that they don't want to hear. And just because Susie's doing it doesn't mean that you can do it, honey, because I'm trying to save your brain. I know when I was bringing up my kids and it worked, but I'm not saying it would work with everyone. And they were boys. But I used when they would get upset with me, I would say, I'm on your side. You know, we're both on the same team here. What is what is our goal? And if we can kind of take back the mantle of effective parenting, maybe there's a chance. Because as you know, if you are interested in going on a diet and there's nothing wrong with that, right, to be healthier, if a young girl Googles diet in her search engine, before she knows it, she is going to be in a pro-anorexia site. That means a site explaining to the young girl how to get anorexia, how to eat nothing, plans for this stuff. There is a deep web for all of our children. 
and it is a national crisis. So thank you for putting it in those terms and talking about the increased statistics and what we're really dealing with here, because there needs to be a parental movement to take back control of the device. So our children are not bombarded 24 seven and bullying too, right? You used to be able to go home from school and hang out with your mom and talk about stuff. Now you're just on your device morning, noon and night and it's poisoning our young people's brains. You know, it's almost like we don't realize it, but our children are living in an online community instead of living in the real world. I mean, we really got to get it together about this. I think so, Anne, and they are. They're living in a warped environment. They're living in a, in a reality that, I mean, you know, we see the damage that comes from the internet and people communicating in places we can't see them. There's also no regulation of the internet. These companies just do what they want and hide what they want. So as a society, this is a new technology and we're gonna have to figure out how to use it intelligently because we're on a slippery slope here to losing a lot of future mothers and fathers to these algorithms that do not care about humans. And so often what you're seeing when you go online is an unreal world. I mean, people are only posting, you know, the best pictures or the great days. And that's just not realistic. That's not real life. Thank you so much for saying that, Anne, because that could probably be the main point. As long as we're comparing ourselves to other people, right. like you're already famous with women and girls, it's about not comparing yourself. It's about rediscovering yourself. That self is in there. All that we're thinking through these devices are lies. We need to help our young boys and girls refine themselves and what their purpose and meaning in life is. And we need to come back to a reality that is family oriented, where we're talking at the dinner table and where we talk about difficult subjects with our children. We need to become more intimate with them and closer with them so we understand what they're being exposed to and to let them know, don't compare yourself to anyone else. You're unique and beautiful. What is your passion? What do you wanna give back to the world? What do you want your life to mean? And if we can focus on meaning with our children, focus on the future, focus on how can you give back so that you can feel happy. In Eric Erickson's final stage of development, lifespan, we're choosing either between despair or generativity. So we need to either be giving back or we're going to be despairing. So I think perhaps being more generative and giving back and thinking about the generations that are coming after us and helping them be healthy is a good way to stay focused and to counsel our children and to be their cheerleaders. You're unique. You're special. You have something to give the world that no one else can give. What is that thing? Let's discover it together. And then you can be working on that. And the child has a passion, has a goal has something to plan for and look forward to. Where do you want to go to college? What do you want to do with that degree? How can you help make the world a better place? Then we're on the right track and we can push back against the algorithm. Now you have a couple of sessions coming up. Can you just tell our listeners what they are and where to find them? Sure. You can find Already Famous with Dr. Donna on 
Instagram and Facebook. So maybe you could hop from an unhealthy platform to a healthy one. Exactly. Also, my website is alreadyfamousnow.com. So you can find all my videos there. And additionally, I'm going to be starting a Facebook group for women and girls called the Already Famous Sisterhood. So people can look for that group on Facebook and join it and start this movement together with me so that we can own our feminine power, our beautiful giving nature, and help this world flourish rather than the direction we're seeing it going in. Dr. Donna Rockwell, what an incredible effort. And I know that I speak for Luann when I say we are in on this. We support you 100%. And we're going to keep checking back with you just to see how it's going and how we can help you because this is important and it's something we need to do. Thank you so much for having me today, Anne. And let's just lift up our women and girls and let them know how fabulous they are because they have riches to give. You've been listening to Women Who Lead. On behalf of my co-host, Luann Thomas-Ewald, thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend.